0: grief is a measure of how much we have loved something like if you don't love something if if you don't feel it as a loss then you're not going to grieve it so that's the that's the hard thing and that's the the promise that you kind of have to make to yourself when you Uh, choose to love something is that it's it's uh, it's going to come to an end like every relationship that we have in some way is going
1: to come to an end greetings and welcome to the inside community podcast i'm your host rebecca mesritz I'm not sure where in the world you might be listening to this podcast right now, but here in Southern Oregon, we are entering the fall, a season that always seems to come so abruptly. We move suddenly from those long, hot, lazy days into suddenly cooler, darker mornings, leaves changing color, and that brilliant crispness in the air. Like so many, autumn is my favorite season. Yet it's one that really symbolizes in so many visible and visceral ways, the end of life cycles. As the leaves change color and begin to fall, as we pull the final fruits and vegetables from our garden, as we witness new fungal fruiting in the form of mushrooms starting to pop up, we are reminded everywhere of dying and loss. For many, it is a season of grief or a time to reflect on the closing of chapters, So in light of all this, or maybe I should say in dark of all of this, I wanted to do an episode on death and dying in community. It is a topic of great interest to me personally, and I think something really important for communities to take a look at together. There's such an incredible opportunity for us to redesign the way we look at end of life care, death care, and grief that can be so much more healing and empowering than I think it has been in the mainstream world. We're going to do a few words for my amazing sponsors and then jump right into a beautiful, deep, and thought-provoking conversation with death midwife and home funeral guide, Angela Franklin. So stick around. We'll be right back. Coho U.S. is the hub of the co-housing movement, convening individuals and organizations with a shared vision for intentional community living. Expert-led courses and forums on the Cohousing Institute provide the skills and expertise to build and sustain your community, available both live and on demand. Join Coho U.S. for the Commons, a monthly gathering space for the cohousing curious, the 10th of every month at 10 a.m. Mountain. Learn more at www.cohousing.org. For more than 50 years, communitarians, community seekers, and cooperative culture activists have been sharing their stories and helpful community resources in Communities magazine. Over the course of the magazine's history, Communities has published essays and articles from community all-stars, future thinkers, and wisdom keepers on virtually every topic related to forming, maintaining, living in, and even leaving community. You can gain access to all back issues in digital form, plus receive current print or digital issues by subscribing now at gen-us.net slash subscribe. A complete article index, community index, and issue theme list are all available online to help you find the inspiration you're looking for. Angela Franklin is a practicing death midwife and home funeral guide. She currently provides workforce and community trainings on a variety of topics surrounding end-of-life support, grief literacy, advanced care planning, and suicide prevention and postvention. She is a founder of Journey Home, a community-driven organization based on practical death care, education, outreach, and community grieving support. Angela has lived in a variety of collective spaces and intentional communities and is working toward death literacy and sovereignty being brought back into our lives. Angela Franklin, welcome to the Inside Community Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about this kind of, um, I think, a subject that a lot of people find dark or spooky or taboo, and it's kind of a strange thing to be excited to talk about, but it's actually something that I, I personally am, am very interested in, and it's something that I I think is really needed for our culture, and I'm sure you agree, to have more open and candid conversations about death and dying and grief. So I'm very, very grateful to you for taking the time to to chat with us about this.
0: Yeah, I get excited uh, being able to talk about this with people as well, and I try to create as many situations as possible uh, to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, well, of course, this this is a show about community, and you have a, a bit of a community history. I know you're not currently living in an intentional community, but can you just tell us a little bit about about your community journey and, and how that's showing up for you now? Yeah, so... um I was
0: thinking about this. I'm like, how many intentional communities have I lived in? And, uh, it really started, uh, coming from a more, uh, radical, uh, anarchist background, I guess, uh, living in urban collective houses and doing lots of organizing work and, um, so that was my first intentional uh community and that started in uh outside of St. Louis and then moving back to the Portland area and bringing people along with us. And then I and my husband and our two kids uh we decided that we wanted a shift and so we found out about a intentional community in southern Oregon outside of Ashland, uh of families living in a TB community. And so we went and we uh started into that lifestyle. And so uh TB Village uh was where we first landed in our what was actually listed on the IC uh website. So um So that was our experience. We lived there just probably shy of two years. Um, And so that was a, a community of multiple families um, of one elder uh, at the time. And we had more children than we had adults in that community. And so we lived on the ground um, with the elements, and then when we left that community, then we uh, traveled for a long, more in uh, a converted school bus, and played music around the country, and uh, did lots of other things, and we landed outside of the Ashland area and another rural little valley in the Illinois Valley, uh, and found an amazing community. Uh, and we've been for four years now in, I was having the discussion with my husband last night, actually. And he's like, we live in an intentional community. And so, um, and I'm like, yeah but I don't feel like a lot of the people who currently live there feel like it's an intentional community. So I'll just uh, give you a little bit of background. So um, we live in a place called Sunstar and it was started as an intentional community uh, in the mid seventies. So it's been around for 50 years and um, a bunch of uh, hippies from Santa Barbara actually decided that they wanted to come up into this area and have you know back to the land uh kind of movement, which is a lot of where our southern oregon um intentional communities come from that have been around for a long time, and so uh we have people who live there who were one of the original founders um but it's grown from that really uh, interdependent and communal feeling to more of we all share land. We come together for quarterly meetings. Um, we have a shared, uh, you know, vision of how we want to live. We're all off grid. And, you know, we have three generations um, living on the yeah. land out here. So that's kind of like, it is an intentional community, but it's, it doesn't feel like what it felt to live in Teepee village where um, we took care of
1: each other. Yeah. Not as integrated. It. Yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. a different flavor. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, as you've been a death, a death midwife and in the home funeral world for a while, has that ever touched into any of the communities that you've lived in? It it has touched into the
0: communities. Um, and I've been a death midwife for, um, About five years now practicing. Um, You know, I was studying and really interested in things before that, but I had, we had a death in our community that kind of threw us into the forefront. um, And it kind of dropped myself and my husband, who also is a death midwife, into that role. So, up until that point, a lot of it was looking back and seeing how. Um, how this could have been utilized in those other settings. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we can go into that more um, later on. I'm sure we will touch into that.
1: So why is it important to think about death in times when it doesn't feel like, you know, when no one's actively dying?
0: Well, we're all actively dying <laughs> all the time. <laughs>
1: Right now, you and I are crying.
0: Yeah.
2: Um,
0: This is a question that I uh,
2: deal with a lot. And when we talk about death,
0: you know, there's two types of death there's expected death, and then there's unexpected death. And oftentimes, when we have unexpected deaths, those are the hardest ones to um, come to terms with and to support each other in. Uh, And so because of that, I feel like planning and getting these things uh, worked out ahead of time is going to help us when we have that unexpected death, uh, especially for young folks and then also we it's it's a practice it's almost like you know if we can integrate uh preparing for death into our spiritual practices then it can be healing and it can be something that can um make our uh
1: spiritual work have even more meaning so mm. So when people are thinking about death, their own death or the death of their partner, you know, it just seems to me to be such a a personal thing, like a personal, I mean, obviously it is, but I'm thinking about it in the context of community and what it can look like when you you know, share lives with, with lots of people, you know, share lives with close friends or people that have become like your family. And, you know, what, how does that, what does that look like? Or what can that look like? Do you think? So um, there's a couple of things there
0: is we have to have conversations with folks to be able to have our wishes be known. And Once we are no longer physically here, then who's going to carry out our wishes? So if you want anything in particular, you have to think about how is that going to happen? So um, figuring out who your support system is, and that usually is going to take more than one person. We um have relied upon the funeral industry so much since um, the Civil War is really when the shift happened in the United States from when uh, taking care of our own dead was something that stayed within our communities and within our families. And because of the mass amount of death that happened in the Civil War, that's when the um, embalming Um, started to come back because they needed to find ways to preserve the dead soldiers' bodies so that they can return them to home. And so uh, that's when this industry kind of started popping up. And, you know, President Lincoln was uh, one of the first people embalmed that was uh, known by a lot of people. And so they actually had a funeral procession um, from where he died back to Illinois, where he li- was from, and people were able to see Lincoln's embalmed um, body um, as they did this uh, caravan back. So that kind of put into people's minds of what someone should look like and what we should be doing for um our family if we love them. And it became this uh, more removed. So as we are now, especially in intentional communities and people that are focused on bringing, um, bringing things back into what we can do for ourselves and for each other and not rely upon the funeral industry necessarily. Um, it's really important to have those conversations, uh, with our community and to, to figure that out. Um, and when you have an intentional community that has deed to the land that you're on, not every individual community has that, that deed. Um, there's the possibility of creating the, a burial grounds, um, you know, at your uh area that you live in. So that's gonna take um some figuring out. And then also one of the things that um I teach a lot when I do advanced care planning, which talks about advanced directives and um after death care directives and having these conversations with our loved ones in our community is that uh We have to actually think about the legality and when you are wanting someone who's not necessarily your legal next of kin to be the people who are making these decisions for you when you're no longer able to communicate or to um, tend to your body after you die, it's not possible unless you're a legal next of kin. And so, when we think about the people who live in intentional communities, um, who maybe live outside of the mainstream culture, um, sometimes we're estranged from our uh family of origin, and so uh, if you're not married to your partner, um, if you have that estrangement from your family, then you really do need to. Um, figure out how to legally appoint your chosen family as the people who will be making these decisions and being able to take care of your, um, your body after death. And a lot of states have documents that will help you um, be able to do this. And I teach this a lot um, around the LGBTQ community is where um, I first started supporting people in this way. And I found that common thread of, oh, yeah, this is also for our, us folks that live out in the woods. <laughs> you know, we live out in the woods because we want to or we have to. So, um Yeah that was long-winded.
1: <laughs> no, that's, I mean, there's so many threads that I want to, that I want to follow and and tease out. Um, yeah, I guess I want to kind of rewind back to this idea of um, not relying on the funeral industry. And, you know, if you're someone who is sort of outside of the mainstream and you're trying to think about what your plan is and how to how to actualize it, you know, do you recommend taking a class or ha- having someone come to your community and teach about, because it feels like a lot of these things, I mean, not only is it taboo, but also because to, in a lot of ways to talk about death, it's kind of dark. People don't even really want to think about it. And then it seems like when you want to start looking for like what your options are, it's, the funeral industry <laughs> and that's that's a, it's difficult to find other empowering resources so how do you recommend communities or individuals just get empowered around how to create their their wishes how to ask people for hey would you would you be in my death support system if you don't have like a defined you know partner or something like that like how do you how do you start to get that support to create a good death plan Yeah.
0: I think the very first thing that you can do, we have an amazing resource and it's called the National Home Funeral Alliance. And I'm a member of it. Um, It is a collection of folks all over the country. And um, we actually just put out a, a home funeral resource guidebook and it is so thick and so amazing (laughs) and, um, and it's available. So that is something that I would love people to do is to go and check out that website. Um, and then there's ways to connect with people in community chats, uh, different workshops. And then also, um, getting involved in different uh community connection events around death and dying like finding your closest death cafe um there's so many What's a death cafe? Yeah, a death cafe. I actually did one last night. So um a death cafe is something that was started uh in the in the UK. And it's an international movement. And basically, it's a group led discussion about everything surrounding death and dying. So there's no, you know, agenda. Uh, people just come together, um, often drinking tea and coffee and uh, eating, you know, sweet treats, and just having a open discussion of whatever comes to mind. So it's really kind of great stream of consciousness. Sometimes depending on who's there is, uh, it can be a completely different experience from one death cafe to another. Um, There's also death over dinners where uh, people gather together for a dinner party and there's a set of questions, you know, that are all related to death and dying. So creating that container um, to have people feel a little bit more comfortable talking about these topics. And then there's also different things like um, the death deck, which is uh, a, a death or a card deck that has, you know, multiple choice questions around death and dying, and then also some um, open questions. And so you can bring a group of people together and everyone Pull a card and you answer that. And so, what I find is that
2: once people are given permission to talk about death, that often they won't stop talking. (laughs) And
0: so, you know, we just, it's taboo to talk about these things. Um, So, if you can create an environment where people feel um, safe to talk about it. And, um, and oftentimes, you know, if someone isn't feeling like they want to go into it, it's because they um, maybe have some unprocessed grief or trauma around um, their death um, and dying experiences in their life. So even that itself, in an intentional community, maybe is an opening to, um, you know, support and tend to that grief that someone is experiencing.
2: So I I feel like um, it's a it's a great opening, and if
0: we come at it as um, exploration. And as a little bit of an exciting thing that we can do for each other, then it's not as dark. Um, you know, when we have a loss, um well, I'll give you an example of, um, you know, I, I talked about how we had a community member that died tragically, and uh it was it was the worst day for a lot of people. And we had, um, a 27 year old friend who was a musician, um, in our little, uh, community in Tillamook, Oregon. Um, and she was a earth defender and, um, you know, you know, the person that everyone felt like, uh, she was one of their best friends. And so when she died, uh we just didn't know like what to do it was uh beyond imaginable she had such momentum in her life and she created momentum within the community to like do better to uh stand up for things um you know organizing skill shares and um just creating these amazing community uh connection events And when her mother uh, came, flew in um, after she had died, you know, she wanted to cremate her. And luckily, we had had conversations, myself and um, my husband with her, about uh, death and dying and these conversations that we had with her were not um you know dark we both come from uh you know study plant medicine and uh you know love folklore and different things so we would like talk about uh what are the things that we could possibly do and how could we actually put our um our death to be useful for the things that we fought for in life and so with her we talked about um doing conservation uh burial grounds and that's where uh you know in different countries and different states like if you bury someone then that area uh sometimes it's the whole acre sometimes it's a quarter acre around it that's um forever protected because now it's a cemetery Hmm. And so, you know, she was like, hey, I fought most of my adult life to um stop, you know, clear cutting and save old growth forests. Um, so you know what? I want to uh put my body uh out on the land that her and her partner, you know, um had. And so that way I know that that's never gonna be logged. Hmm. And Uh, You know, we talked about what we wanted to, uh, that we want to be, you know, an elder tree planted on us so Mm -hmm. that we could, uh, you know, become that spirit that lives in an elder tree um, that Mm -hmm. has been in folklore. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, that was like the conversations, like it doesn't have to be like, well, if I died um you know these are all of the the things that i want people doing like that's really helpful but not completely necessary just having like those fun like exploration conversations um at first and then um you know maybe working together as a community to actually figure out like what do we need to um create these spaces and mm. um you know, fulfill someone's wishes.
2: Mm,
1: That's beautiful. That's, and she was able to have that.
0: Yeah. And it was because of our conversations that we, when her mother flew in, um, her partner who was not married, um, to her because they didn't believe in state, you know, marriage had absolutely no power. And so we really had to, um, have the really hard conversations during a time in immense like acute grief going on to mm-hmm. like you know almost you know we had to convince her mother who was her legal next of kin that she wanted to have a natural burial that she wanted to um you know not be cremated that she wanted we talked about you know doing a shroud and um, and that we needed to find a place, um, that we were able to, um, bury her. And it ended that we made a collective decision, um, as a community that we would bury her, um, at the, 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 the farm and educational space out in Takilma called Spiral Living Center, um, where she did a lot of classes and she helped really craft and create, um, and she studied permaculture. And so we felt that, um, creating a community burial ground, um, on that land was part of the permaculture, um, model that not a lot of people think about and so mm. uh death and dying was something that uh
2: needed to be included so we um had her there and um that that planning the conversations made it happen
0: and then also uh just the the communication between the her mom and her partner and the rest of the community really working together you know to make it happen because a lot of people didn't know that you could uh have a home funeral that you could yeah. you know bury someone on private land and it it changes depending on what state and what county you live in um but you can find out um you know what the local regulations are and the National Home Funeral Alliance is one of the places that is a
1: great starting point. Again, mm. awesome. Uh, so let's let's dig into this a little more because I, I, for people who don't know about what a home funeral is, for if if someone's never heard, how would you describe a home fu- funeral?
0: Uh, a home funeral is a, um, a memorial um, or a wake or a visitation, um, any kind of activity after the moment of death, where it is family and community-led, family or community-led. And so basically, a home funeral could be done completely without um, assistance from a funeral home, Or it could be done in conjunction with a funeral home or some funeral homes. Um, if asked might actually do a lot of the work, but just the location is at someone's house or in a community space. Um, but a lot of times when I talk about home funerals, it's more of that, um, community led. So,
2: um, understanding how to um you know keep
0: a body in a way that is um uh up to regulations so that's a different thing so it depending on um your state and your uh your county and the Cemetery and mortuary regulations that are taking place. Um, you have to refrigerate, you know, a body after a certain amount of time, and that refrigeration can look like uh, dry ice or techni ice, which is a little bit less um, of an ordeal to, you know, to handle. Um, so it's not, uh, it's not complicated. Um, and some states you do have to, um, include a funeral director and sometimes that's just oversight. So they actually aren't doing anything. They're just like being, uh, told what's happening and they just kind of have to oversee the family, um, you know, taking care of things. Um, but most states you
2: can do it all yourself. and so there's there's a lot of possibility in a home
0: funeral to where it could be this really long um you know organized thing that has so many different you know things of well we're going to we're going to have 3 days of um a person being laid out in honor, you know, shrouded or in a casket and people can come and you know, visit and uh, say their goodbyes and have time to process. And then that person then gets picked up by a funeral home and taken and whatever you want to do, cremation or burial or whatnot. Uh, At that time, if it's a home funeral, then that body would then be buried wherever the private you know, um, burial spaces at. Um, or another thing that I do that is, uh, it is a home funeral, but I call it a fare the well ceremony. So not everyone has the capacity or the privilege to be able to do a home funeral. Um, but there is a space of time between the point of death and maybe the couple of hours um, before a funeral home comes to retrieve a body. So even if you don't have the ability to really do um, a larger home funeral, you can still do some activities together um, after the moment of death. And so, and that can look like um, you know, washing a body, doing a blessing, um, just having that intentional space that has um, some sort of ceremonial component to it so that we can start um, engaging with what just happened.
3: Hey everyone, my name is Daniel Greenberg, and I'm so excited to join the FIC as co director. Every year, close to half a million people visit IC.org, seeking community through our free online directory, as well as our bookstore, programs, forums, and other valuable resources. That's truly amazing and makes us, and hopefully you, very happy. And we're still a nonprofit, and we need your support. With the decline of course registrations in the post-COVID economy, we're now in the position of needing to raise $45,000 to make it through 2023. The good news is we're poised to take a quantum leap in our engagement with our networks and the world. Imagine a North American Communities Council meeting at regional and international gatherings. Imagine expanded networks and groups and more resources, courses, and events to bring a greater sense of community and belonging to millions all possible. But to get from here to there, we need your financial help today to support our small yet dedicated team that works tirelessly behind the scenes to make it all happen. The threat of closing our virtual doors after 36 years is real. Please go to ic.org donate today and give what you can to ensure our online directory will remain free and updated. And so we can continue offering unique and helpful resources to everyone who envisions a more just, resilient, and cooperative world. That's ic.org slash donate, in case you missed it. Please, contribute today. Thank you.
1: CADIS is not your everyday architecture firm. Their interest in regenerative and community supportive design has cultivated an expertise in intentional and co-housing communities with a focus on rich and healthy human experiences. Design excellence and pragmatism are at the core of their work, as is an ethic of service to the client and natural or urban environments. CADIS is a leader in sustainable design, zero energy homes, passive house, and delightful neighborhoods. They are experts in grassroots community engagement and apply attention, sophisticated design, and creative solutions to every project. If it's worth building, it's worth building it well. Find CADIS on Facebook and Instagram and at That's caddispc.com. That's C-A-D-D-I-S-P-C dot It's so hard to imagine, you know, it's hard to like put yourself when you're not in the state of grief that you would, of course, be in at the loss of a loved one which is how I can imagine that the home funeral industry has become what it is, is because people are like in a state of grief and just not knowing. And they're just like, okay, (laughs) somebody else deal with this. I can't even deal with my emotions right now. But then I also see this other side of it that's like the beauty of, you know, engaging with the body of your loved one and tending to them and caring for them is actually what – could enable you to be able to process their passing, um, in a in a different way. So, all that to say, you know how how do you or, you know, is this the kind of thing that would come up at a death cafe? Like learning about some of these things, so that you're not trying to learn a new skill. Like, how do you wash a dead body? <laughs> in the middle of also being grief stricken and you know in a deep process.
0: Yeah, I think that if you if you want to have a home funeral, um that it is good to reach out and find who in your community um would be able to help out with that. Um and if there are home funeral guides, um that is a great uh resource. And I think that end-of-life doulas um, or death midwives, death doulas, there's lots of different names that, you know, kind of talk about the same role. Um, Finding your local uh, death doula will maybe be able to connect you to um, home funeral resources. Because it's not that every end-of-life doula um, is a home funeral guide, but oftentimes those trainings that we go through will touch upon home funerals. And um, because end-of-life doulas are working to support families, um, you know, in non-medical ways, and uh, oftentimes doing after-death care is uh, touched upon. But like I said, not every death doula feels comfortable um, doing any of the after
1: death care, you know, type things. So, um, so what does a death what does a death doula do, <laughs> or a death midwife?
0: Yeah. So uh, a death doula, death midwife, um, what they do is provide the non medical support to an individual, a family, or a community. Um when someone is uh is dying, and so um i I call myself a death midwife because I was trained um, at, through sacred crossings in the art of death midwifery, and that's through Olivia Barham um, down in l a and so that was the term that was being used because. We were trained to start supporting people before a diagnosis was even there. So we were um, just working with people with death anxiety all the way through a diagnosis, through end of life, and then after death. And then we also um, were trained on home funerals and being uh, celebrant life celebrants. Um, and so because of that we use the term death midwife because it was such a a broad spectrum of things that we did um so in that sense the possibilities of what a death midwife or end of life doula could do is anywhere from a bedside presence um to educating the individual or the family on what to expect when someone is dying of what active dying looks like, um, giving spiritual support, uh, doing advanced care planning. So helping people fill out, um, or understand what an advanced directive is, what, a um, a post is, which is the portable orders for life-sustaining treatment, um, you know, and also used kind of as the DNR, do not resuscitate, um, being a liaison between the family and the person and the hospice care team and like really identifying the gaps um, and addressing those. And mm-hmm. then organizing the community and the friends to help support the family or the caregivers, because hospice doesn't provide 24 seven caregiving, they provide 24 seven support, but not an actual physical presence to be there. Um, And then also, um, I'm trying to think there's there's so much it's kind of like a, a wheel spoke, you know, where you have like the end of life doula and you have like these like, 20 different things that we could possibly do for someone. And some end of life doulas only feel comfortable, um, or they feel passionate about a handful of them, you know? So you really do have to, um, talk with an end of life doula and ask them like, what, what are the things that you are, um, what are your services that you offer? And see if they f- are a good fit with what your needs are.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I could I could see a real benefit to a community or a, a you know cooperative group, collaborative group being to start to host these conversations and start getting some ideas about like what your values are, what kind of I mean, even if everybody doesn't have the same ideas about what they want, how they want their body handled, or what they want their services to look like, just sort of identifying on a broader level, like having the conversation, starting to make the wishes known. And then sort of, as you said, engaging with people, uh, service providers, and, and having some of that relationship up front, so that, again, in the time of need, you're not uh, all of a sudden trying to like interview people. <laughs> for, for services when you're dealing with someone who's critically ill or, or has even already passed. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. What, what other, what kinds of things do you think, you know, when they're create, when people are creating a plan, what are some of the basic things? I mean, you've talked about who your, who your support system, what your team looks like. Um, you've talked about wishes for your, for your body Um, Whether you want to be buried or cremated or a mushroom bag or whatever those things might be. What are some other things that people may or may not have considered about what they would want in their end of life plan? I think that
0: the first thing that we need to do is to really have um, some personal exploration into What our experiences have been around death and dying and to go through maybe, um, you know, like a life review, um, but instead a death review. And so to really spend time thinking about, you know, what was the very first death that you ever experienced? Um, what did you learn from that death? uh was there anything that you were not stoked on was there anything that you really um thought was beautiful uh and to understand as much as possible uh what exactly you would want um people to experience after you died and and how we can help create that experience before we die. So, and that looks like, um, you know, what type of uh, container would you want your body to be in? You know, so do you want a shroud? Do you want um, a casket? Do you want, uh, you know, like you said, to be cremated or buried or, you know, uh, I live in Oregon, you live in Oregon now, but you lived in California before. Um, you know, what are, the th- what are the things that are possible? Um, Colorado is a state that, I mean, like anything is possible in Colorado. It's kind of insane um, how many different um, options there are for a person's body. Um, anywhere from an open funeral pyre to donating your body to a educational research facility where you uh, tell them what scenario you would like your body to be left in. And then they uh, document and research and it's for forensic, you know, purposes um, that they will do these different things. Um, But in Oregon, you know, we have uh, natural reduction, which is the human composting. We have aquamation. Um,
1: and hmm. aquamation is that like burial at sea or what is that?
0: No, so we do have fair, full body burials at sea as well. Um, aquamation is something that um, there is a vessel. Um, that your body goes into and there is warm water and lye and a little bit of agitation and it actually breaks down the body um and so uh this is a process that has you know we talk about cremains so there is something where they will the bones are left and so they pulverize the bones so you can get that um those remains just like cremains with the ashes back to be able to spread. And this is a process that a lot of our, um, animal shelters and veterinarians utilize, um, for animal bodies. Um, but it's also something that is offered for humans as well. Hmm. Um, and so that is a possibility and, um, yeah. So just like, an. figuring out what is all possible, and then deciding what you feel most aligned with. And um, I talk a lot about um, death sovereignty, and death literacy, and death readiness. And these are all things that, um, as a community, we can kind of work on together to figure out, like, what is our knowledge of these topics? And to, you know, ask the questions and um, see, yeah, what I would just, yeah, come together around a hearth, around, you know, whatever thing, and just start introducing these ideas. Um,
2: because it's gonna take a li- planning, <laughs> and um, yeah. Hmm.
1: So you know, you talked about something earlier about sort of all of the the different trainings that you received becoming a, a death midwife, and a, a topic of great interest of mine is is rites of passage, and. The real opportunity, if folks choose to take an empowered stance around their around their death, to treat this final rite as a yeah, a real moment of. I mean, I guess you're not really coming into yourself, you're sort of exiting yourself at that point. But like what the possibility of death as a rite of passage can be. And I'm curious about what your thoughts might be on that and, um, yeah, what, what people might be able to sort of look forward to in, in their own dying experience. Yeah.
2: Um, I think death is you know, definitely a, um, a rite of passage,
0: you know, just like being birthed. Um, you, it's not a, um, it's not something that just happens. Like there, there is a labor to it. You, your body is
2: working on it and, um, I think that
0: per I mean I don't know what happens at death. <laughs> I don't know what happens after death. Um it is the the greatest mystery that no one, you know, can really
2: answer for us. And I think that that is the the ultimate um the ultimate thing
0: that we can work towards is being okay
2: and honoring the mystery. And so um one
0: of the things that uh Olivia Barum, you know, teaches in her some of her classes is uh like surrender that oftentimes, uh, when people think about death and dying, um, and there's the fear and there's a lot of, um, unresolved things like you're contracting. And, uh, and one of the things is like when you're contracting and you're, you know, tense, then things are going to be more painful and things are going to be, there's going to be more suffering, you know, that happens. But if you can uh, relax and uh, just surrender to whatever happens is what's going to happen, that that's when there's this opening. um, And it can be really beautiful, no matter what your death is whether it is, you know, the, the good death that we all talk about. I don't know if any, if death is just death, you know, we can do as much as we can to like prepare and to reduce suffering um, as much as possible. Um, but I think in the end, every death is just death. Um, and so the rite of passage. I mean, I'm thinking of like as an individual and then as a collective, like Mm -hmm. it's going to be a different experience. So pretty much what I was just talking about is the individual, but collectively, there is so much healing that can happen when you take part in someone's rite of passage. And, um, you know, I've taken part in when, uh, you know, people who bleed, uh, when their cycle starts And when uh, we come together as other people who um, bleed monthly or on cycles, and so we come together and support that person, Um, that is beautiful because that's not something that everyone does. And when I've participated in those, like there's a part of me that heals because of what I wasn't um, provided at that time. and. Um, there's a piece of my own grief um, that gets brought up and processed. And so again, when we're talking about death and being with someone during that time, again, uh, we are able to you know, support them and create that container for their death to happen um, with as little suffering as possible. Um, but also we, death is our greatest teacher, so we're able to learn and heal, um, little things within inside of us also. So I think that that is really important, um, part of the, you know, the death rites and creating ceremony because we are lacking ceremony, um, in so many of our transitions in life. Um. That other cultures uh, have really um, uplifted, and um, and so if we can create ceremony that helps us process what is going on, um, then we will be able to have a little bit better relationship for others and ourselves. You know, when our time comes, or if were called to um, you know, be with other people during their
1: death and dying. Can you share, you know, when you talk about that ceremony? I mean, especially for people who uh like so many these days are operating outside of a religious framework that kind of created that for us, you know, you you died, you have a mass, you know, the body gets taken, it's in, you know, put into the ground, then you go to the wake. <laughs> and that's sort of like, you know what to expect. By the time hopefully, you know, you make it to old age and, and, and your partner or someone is dying in in an ideal, in an ideal world. But now we don't have that religious framework. And I'm curious to know what you've seen as a possibility for, for beautiful ceremony that feels, you know, meaningful and authentic. And, um, yeah, like what can that look like for people? Yeah. Um,
0: well, I want to first touch upon, you know, that idea that we're less religious um, of, uh, I guess, the younger generation. it seems like we're less religious um, and and that that does affect our um, our knowledge and our um, response to death and dying definitely. you know I was raised uh, in the Baha'i faith and from a very young age, I knew, that I had very specific things that I was going to take part in. Um, so that I knew that any of the women in our community that died, once I was a certain age, I would probably help them uh, with the shrouding, with the washing. Um, there was specific, you know, prayers and very specific death rites. And I always had comfort in that because I knew that that's what was going to happen. And, um, when I have conversations with, um, friends of mine that are funeral directors, uh, and that have been doing this work for, you know, a certain amount of time, or they, uh, did work, you know, back, uh, Back in the Midwest versus the West coast. Um, they also commented on this also is that there is a, people are more almost lost in what they need to do or what they should do because they're not having these religious guidelines that tell us, you know, like, this is how it goes. And um so what I think we can do is create our own, you know, ceremony and ritual and um to be careful about, you know, cultural appropriation because that's something that I um I see a lot when people don't have their own you know religious or spiritual practice and they are kind of like picking and choosing from different ones um i think what is important is to think about why is this a part of a ceremony and to really think about like what is the symbolic um thing that it is trying to pull forth um from us And then to create something that is not copying and, um, you know, being culturally appropriative, um, but to really figure out, uh, how we could do this in a way that is honoring, um, you know, the person and the community. And so that can look like um, you know, just uh, yeah. Um it's a it's a it's a a little bit of a complicated thing because it takes some time to not just uh you know say like ooh that's really awesome. I'm gonna do that too. And I'm gonna use the exact words and
1: uh you know? So, well, is there something from your own death plan that you feel like you could share? Like something that feels like it, it hits the mark for this specific need of a, of, uh, of a ritual, but is not derivative or appropriative, but is you, it reflects your, your value. Yeah. So one of the things that I
0: developed and, um, it's so meaningful to me now because it's something that like it came out of uh lots of different areas in my life so um i have been a natural dyer uh like fabric dyer for a long time and me too um i yeah. And I loved uh folklore and plant lore. So, um and I also studied, you know, kind of like traditional um I want to say magic, but I guess that's uh, uh Yeah, I don't know <laughs> exactly. You can say magic? Um, you can say magic? I like that word. <laughs> yeah, so like traditional magical practices um which is really just, you know, doing things with intention and understanding that there's relationships and connection that can be kind of acknowledged. Um, and there's a, there's a benefit to acknowledging those connections and those relationships, even when we can't maybe physically see, um, a person, but, um, yeah, I would say I'm an animist more than anything. So there's, uh, there's a presence to most everything in our lives. Um, and so because I did natural dyeing, um, I love plant lore. I love doing things with intention. Um, I, uh, started with my friend who, um, who died that I was talking about before. Um, I wanted to naturally dye her shroud And, um, a friend of mine said, Hey, you do this style, um, eco printing where you take like a leaf or a flower and you place it on the fabric and then you roll it up and then you put it in a dye bath or you steam it. And when you unroll it, it's the actual pigment from that shape or that leaf or flower sticks to the fabric. And so it's really beautiful. Um, but as an artist, I'm like, only certain plants, you know, uh, give images only, you know, we have to be really intentional because I'm thinking of like as a natural entire, I'm like, we have to think about this. And my friend was like, well, you also practice like magic stuff. Don't you think that you could just whatever intention a person has through that plant or that mm. leaf would And I'm like, wow, you just schooled me. And I did. So I was like, oh, well, we could do a whole ceremony where we intentionally imbue fabric, a shroud with different plants. And, um, so what I, I created this, a ceremony, um, and I've done it with, um, a whole community coming together and um dying and imbuing a funeral shroud together um and sometimes the plants leave you know uh prints sometimes they don't but because it was you know steamed into it you know you know that that it was imbued with whatever intention that person put down and creating the ceremony around that um and using that as a shroud. And then I've also had the opportunity to do this with someone before they died, and to choose people that were important in their lives, to come together, and we created her shroud with her present. And she wasn't physically able to um, participate, but she was there in the room. You know, we set up different altars, um, for the different directions we called in her ancestors and the different, you know, uh, spirits to be present and guide us. And we, yeah, created this beautiful shroud, um, that she got to see, um, you know, like four days before she died knowing what was going to be surrounding her. Mm. Um, and so, it's so beautiful. It's so yeah, beautiful. and so that was beautiful. And then also um the washing and blessing ceremony has been so beautiful because it's something that even people who are like really freaked out about the idea they they're able to do this. And I've had people that before the death, I kind of go over with them like okay, this is what your mom or your husband kind of said that they want So let's talk about what it's going to look like after this person, you know, dies and we're going to do a a washing. It doesn't have to be like a really like, you know, it's sometimes it's more symbolic than actually cleaning someone. Um, And so, you know, we choose what essential oils, um, we want to use if any at all. And we have, a uh, a bowl of, you know, warm scented water, um, maybe a little bit of Dr. Browners in it. Um, and we write a blessing. And so this is something that, um, I think I've done with every, almost every single person that I've supported in a home funeral. Um, And so we talk about, you know, starting at the head, like we want to thank the person, their, you know, their head, the source of their dreams and um, an intellect and memory. And then you, you know, kind of comb the hair and wash the face. And we talk about the eyes and the mouth that brought Um, you know, speech and loving words. And we work down the body to the hands, which held us. And, you know, so you were acknowledging and doing a blessing for every part of the body and relating it to what that person did in life, what they gave us, what they're leaving behind. And so that ceremony, you know, serves practically to you know maybe wash away some of the stuff that kind of collects during someone's um last dying days um and to tend to them and it's a very loving act to be able to do that for someone and you can do that in a hospital um you can do that at home you can do that so anywhere someone dies like you can do that act um and then Um, yeah, so those are the two, um, main things. Oh, and so my, um, to come back around. So I've had these family members who were like super freaked out and they're like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I know that they want me to do this, but I don't know. And so a lot of times what I'll say is, well, you know, I'm here if you can't do it, you know, like I'll step in you know, and help you out. But, um, but they really want you to do it. So you just get a bit of shot. And I've had people who were so scared, just step forward and they, they're a different person after they've experienced this. And
2: I've had people that were, um, that had been traumatized
0: by death in the past and had this like experience and this thought of like how broken and horrible it was going to be. And they questioned like, why do I not feel so destroyed? And they're like, I think it's because I took part in these things after they died. Like it helps, it gives your body something to do to process the grief. And we like, it transmutes the grief into whatever, you know? Um, and so even, you know, the folks that are like, this was the worst and best day of my life the worst day to like wash my daughter's body. Um, But also the best day
2: because I was able to wash my daughter's body. Um, Yeah. I don't know.
0: It's just like, it's (laughs) such a beautiful opportunity that we gave away and we, we didn't have a choice of giving it away us. It really was, you know, our grandparents, um, you know, and great-grandparents' generation, where it was
2: a, a cultural shift. And um, and I think that there's a lot of people who are understanding
0: the benefit of bringing it back into our, um, into our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Reclaiming and remembering.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I'll say since studying ritual in grad school, I really went down a rabbit hole in that and started to learn about home funerals and what the possibilities were. And I knew like in my bones from that moment that that was at least for my, for my, for my own death and for my body and what I would hope to be able to offer to my closest loved ones, my husband or, you know, whoever else might call, um, that that was something that I would hope to be able to offer to them as well. And yeah, just bringing that home. You know, I love, I love what you were saying earlier about your friend and just the idea of permaculture and how you know that you know death is a part of the cycle, and we've as a culture we try we've tried for many <laughs> centuries to take the low the base things out of our life. The trash goes somewhere else, the death and dying goes somewhere else, like all of those things that are associated with decay in the end become separated from our experience and there's just such a beauty to reintegrating them so that we can honor that process as actually life-giving you know and that without those closures we don't get to have the new openings so such a such a beautiful work you get to do in the world Hmm. I'm I I would like to talk a little bit before we wrap up about about grief and grief rituals and you know after the after someone has passed um how communities how people can begin to relate to their own mourning process and I know sometimes Grief rituals happen for people who've died years ago who were not properly mourned. But I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on on grief and how communities can be with their grief in a way that feels constructive, if that's even possible. Healing, Mm -hmm. hopefully.
0: Yeah. Um, Grief is something that we have never been taught how to do. Cuz grief is um something that you have to uh it's an expression, it's an action. Uh and it's something that is uh there's a sacredness to it. And you know, grief is a measure of how much we have loved something. Like if you don't love something, if if you don't feel it as a loss, then you're not going to grieve it. So that's the, that's the hard thing. And that's the, the promise that you kind of have to make to yourself when you uh, choose to love something is that it's, it's uh it's going to come to an end like every relationship that we have in some way is going to come to an end and so
2: um we don't understand what
0: grief is and how to support each other because we are a culture of fixers and grief is not something to be fixed. Uh, grief is something that needs to be experienced so that we can process what our new relationship is with that thing that we lost. Um, and so really being able to, um, be compassionate with someone is really important.
2: Um, and to understand that, uh, the best thing that you can do when someone is grieving is to
0: validate what they're feeling <laughs> you know there's no right or wrong way to grieve and we have this idea of um you know the stages of grief uh kubler ross and that uh you know you have the first stage second stage third stage and then there's you know I, you know up to seven to nine different stages that people have identified And we feel like, oh, so this is what you're supposed to do. This first, this next, and that. And it's not true. (laughs) You know, when you think about grief, you can visit different stages at different times. At the same time, you can go back to one. You can skip ones. Like, everything is possible when someone grieves. It is a chaotic uh, mess, Uh, you know, it can be. And so, to understand that uh, we have to feel our feelings, because when we don't feel our feelings, if we're not allowed to feel our feelings, then that's when we get stuck. And um, so, really, just listening to people and what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, not trying to fix it, but just acknowledging that that's what the person's going through. And um, grief is not an illness. Grief is not a something that we can avoid um, because when we avoid our grief, that's when it becomes trauma.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, that's when it starts affecting other parts of our life and our relationships with people. Um, So when we, other cultures have had, have seen this, you know, and so have created these grief rituals that we take part collectively, because it really takes um, being witnessed by someone else for the grief to, to be able to move, you know, with our grief. Um, it's not really something that happens um, on our own. Uh, and so when we can come together as a community, then we can create these containers. I know I, it's such a a catchphrase or, a, you know, the word, but really it is. It's like creating the situation where people feel safe to fall apart and that's totally okay. So grief rituals typically, you know, acknowledge what the loss is, give space for people to speak whatever loss. And when we talk about grief and loss, it's more than just a physical death. We have so many other deaths throughout our entire lives, and we don't acknowledge them. And that's what the rites of passage coming back to that. So rites of passage are acknowledging the transitions in our life. And you know, there's some really big ones, you know, so like when we, like I said when we uh when uh people start bleeding, uh when people get uh, you know, married or have children or um you know, it's when running. someone retires, you know, like those are all, uh, you know, different transitions, but then also things like, uh, changes in our roles and our identity, you know, that can be, uh, a transition that has loss attached to it, that we need to acknowledge and just process what that, um, that is. And so not to fix, not to get over it, but just to reconcile, have that reconciliation um, is kind of the the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and some really great people that go into this, um, I mean, Francis Weller, um, The Wild Edge of Sorrow is a book that he wrote. And he talks about, um, you know, uh, community grief rituals and coming together as the village and holding space for each other. Um, I, I've learned a lot, and I found his writings have been really beneficial for people that I've supported and for myself. Um, you know, uh, Amy Wright Glenn um, with the Birth, Death, and Breath Institute is another person who talks about. Um, her book is actually called "Holding Space," and um, you know, talks about
2: uh, how we can show up for people around death and dying and grief. Um,
0: and there's so many more. I mean, this. I feel like COVID gave us the opening to um, talk more about our mental health and our support systems. And, um, you know, so I feel like that and use of, um, online platforms like this, where we can connect with each other and people were so starved for interaction and starved for like learning things (laughs) because they had nothing else to do. Um, so, um, yeah, so I feel like there's a lot of stuff out there when it comes to grief literacy and how we can show up for each other, um, around grief. Because we all collectively experienced massive grief um, throughout the pandemic. Um, and there's a lot that we can learn um, and a lot of people offering things right now.
2: Hmm.
1: I feel like we've covered so much <laughs> ground here. <laughs> it's been really, really good. Do you have any final things you want to throw in for people to take with them as they start to to think about this sort of deep uh,
2: very personal subject yeah I think just you know meditating and really exploring what you want your death to look like and what gift you can give to those
0: who love you after you die because it's a gift to create the space for them to mourn and grieve your death um But it's also a gift to do the pre-planning that needs to happen because you then are creating less of a burden on someone when they are deep in their grief. And so the more that we can do ahead of time, the less the people that
2: are still around, you know, have to do, and there is a lot of
0: beauty in letting people know, you know, um, what songs you would like to, you know, be played or asking people in your life to, you know, sing a certain song or everyone sing a song together.
2: Um, you know, talking about what, uh, what other, um, elements of ceremony,
0: um, you would want would be good. And then also, um, if you don't want anything, that's completely fine. What can be traumatic for people is not necessarily not having ceremony, not wanting people to be around, you know, at, while you have your last breath. The the trauma that can happen coming out of that is not letting people know why you chose those things. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I just at the Death Left Cafe last night, there was a person who came because... Um, he wasn't offered anything after his grandfather died. His grandfather didn't want anyone there when he took his last breath. And there was no conversations to understand why. And now this individual is going to take quite some time to
2: understand and just be, um, to be, I want to say to be okay, but that's kind of what's
0: coming to my mind, but to, um, to just process what
2: that means to him, you know? Um, and at the same time, this is death being our teacher, because even
0: when, things happen in a death that we do not like, we don't understand, we want it to be different. What we take away from that experience is going to inform what we do in our
2: death. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would just love for people to practice and work on their dying before they're actually actively dying. And, um,
0: yeah, because thinking about it is not inviting it in. <laughs> I think that that's one of the things that people, you know, are scared of is like, well, if I talk about it, then is that me manifesting it? Hmm. <laughs> And I, you know, like when you talk about like, uh, you know, having sex is, are you going to get pregnant?
1: <laughs> I've talked about winning the lottery a bunch of times, but I still have not won. <laughs> yeah. So
0: <laughs> I think that the more we can normalize it, the more we can um, prepare for it. Um, and support others then the the more we're gonna it's gonna be healing it could be healing
1: you know yeah beautiful beautiful thank you so much Angela Franklin this has been really just such a heartwarming and opening conversation so I just appreciate all your work in this field and for sharing your wisdom with us today Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really amazing. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation with Angela Franklin. I hope that you were able to take some of these words back to your community and your family and your world and use them to create some meaningful, potent, and practical plans for what your final days and death care might look like. Angela mentioned a lot of amazing resources, which I'm going to be linking to in the show notes, but I wanted to also mention that I reached out to the death deck and for my podcast listeners, they're offering a 20% off coupon on their decks, which I highly recommend checking out. They are super cool. I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes, but if you want to just go there, you can use code inside 20 and get yours now. I'm also going to be linking to Angela's different projects that she's got going on. And if you're someone who lives in Northern California or Southern Oregon, she offers a lot of different courses, death cafes, intensives, and of course her services in this region in addition to the support from my sponsors, it's really you guys who make this podcast possible. So if you've gotten something out of this show, I would love your help in promoting it, getting it out there in the world. You can rate and review on Apple podcasts. You can share it with your friends. And of course we would love your donations to help keep the show going. You can give now at ic.org slash podcast. I just love hearing from you guys. Uh, A lot of you reach out to me through Instagram at Inside Community Podcast. I'm also on Facebook. So if you have any questions on the show or on the topics we discuss, please reach out to me there. I would love to hear from you and hear more about how I can support you on your beautiful and messy journey to living inside community. Thanks so much for being here and I'll see you next time.
2: Who left the dishes? shared kitchen sink who helps out johnny when he's had too much to drink how do we find a way for everyone to agree that's inside community it's a podcast y'all